I'm Mike. And I'm Adam. And this is Stuff and Waffle. Two friends talking about stuff, and offers not, waffling with lots of references to Bond cars. This week is another one of our special editions, and we are talking about the Goldfinger Aston Martin DB5. Ah, yes, because we've touched on this previously, haven't we? We promised we have to follow touched up. on this. We did. And now I've been doing some reach. I went on the internet. Oh, no. Don't. I'm not <laughs> posting that on the Instagram. <laughs> Probably best. <laughs> but I also looked up uh, a lot of information about the Goldfinger DB5. To be clear, what we're talking about here is not the history of every DB5 that's been in any Bond film. This is specifically the original car, BMT 216A, the first DB5 built, screen used in in Goldfinger. So we're we will reference some of the other cars as we go along, but okay. this is specifically about the history of that car. And I think I've managed to put together quite a complete Ooh, let's call it a dossier, shall we? Um, well, that would be appropriate, wouldn't it? That would be appropriate, wouldn't it? And it's not dodgy in any way. <laughs> um, or maybe it is, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm assuming there's a bit of dodginess about the uh, the theft. Uh, we do come on to that, yes. Okay. There's, yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a lot going on there. But, um, yeah, I've got, I've, got a few, I've got a few details for us. But we should probably start, I guess, at the beginning. Um, well, if you and, insist. And if I insist. And look at why Bond has an Aston Martin at all. Because okay. in, the, in the first books, in the early books, um, Bond drove a Bentley. He did indeed. Um, Fleming gave him a four and a half litre uh, blower Bentley, um, which he drove uh, in, in all the early books. Um, in fact, in in Casino Royale, and I quote, Fleming writes, uh, Bond's car was his only personal hobby. He drove it hard and well with an almost almost sensual pleasure. Well, it's a bit... <laughs> yeah. It's a bit naughty, that, isn't it? Brilliant, isn't it, that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Especially about a blower Bentley. Um, oh, good heavens, what was Them Fleming thinking about when he was writing that? Dirty boy. A, a dirty little man. <laughs> I, I don't think we want to go into any of that. But no, no, no. Fleming, Fleming was clearly a huge petrol head. Mm. Um, he wrote wonderful car chase scenes in the books. In fact, when he was a young journalist, he um, he went and covered the Le Mans 24 um on more than one occasion well what a wonderful chap well i knew you'd approve of that yes absolutely <laughs> um but yeah i mean he all his writing had that sort of journalistic style with sort of short sharp sentences lots of adjectives um loads of detail really sort of put you in the action yeah um, and um if you'll indulge me um, I, will. I, I have another um, a quote from Casino Royale, um, the uh, sequence where Bond um, crashes uh, his car, which, of course, in the movie they use an Aston Martin DBS, but in the book um, is the Bentley. Mm -hmm. um, and Fleming writes, he was only doing about 60 as he approached the black patch across the right-hand crown of the road. 
Even so, there was no time to save himself. There was suddenly a small carpet of glinting steel spikes right under his offside wing. Then he was on top of it. The heavy car whirled across the road in a tearing dry skid, and then it reared slowly up, its front wheels spinning and its great headlights searching the sky. It seemed to pour at the heavens like a giant praying mantis. Then slowly it toppled over backwards and fell with a splintering crash of coachwork and glass. I mean, what a... Yeah, you can't knock that, can you? What a fantastic... I mean, you you don't need a movie. You're right there, aren't you? No, you know it's, what's happening, don't you? You really do. Um, but to come back to the Aston Martin, in Moonraker, uh, the book... Um, the Bentley is wrecked in a in a chase. That's so right. For yeah. the, so for the next book, Goldfinger, he needs to find Bond a new car. And in 1957, when he was writing that book, he received a letter from a fan, a Dr. G. Gibson. You've probably heard this story, mm. um, who suggested that Bond should have, and I quote, a decent bit of machinery. And he suggested an Aston Martin DB3. And that's where it started. I mean, because of that letter, Fleming decided to give Bond an Aston in the next book. Um, and he says in Goldfinger, the car was from the pool. Bond had been offered the Aston Martin or a Jaguar 3.4. He had taken the DB3. Um, and it what a selection a, of pool cars! There you go, absolutely. I want to work there. Yeah. Um, and it hell. was it was grey with a black interior, and that's why when they came to make the movie, um, they really wanted um, an Aston. Now, obviously, it wasn't going to be a DB3. Um, they wanted to use the latest car, which was a DB5. But as we discussed before, Aston Martin were not mad keen on the idea. Um, they didn't really think it was going to be worth the trouble, and they really weren't bothered about about having the car in the movie at all. But um, you know, they explained to them that you know these films were fairly successful, um, not as successful as Goldfinger was going to become. Of course, I mean that was uh, no. really that's where it really went bonkers. But uh, yeah, they weren't mad keen. They offered to sell them a car, sell them a DB5 at full price, which at the time was £4,500. Bargain. Um, bargain. But, and this is where we made a mistake last time we were talking, mm. although they did say to them, well, we're not really into this, but you can buy a car if you want. I mean, you know, we'll sell a car to anyone. Um, <laughs> but apparently negotiation did go on and on, and they did eventually relent and loan them their development prototype oh i see so they didn't have to buy bmt 216a that was loaned to them and was continued to be owned by aston martin all oh, right so that's why it went back to them that's why it later went back to them because it was always their car eon right. productions didn't buy it um the car and indeed the second car that they asked for later on was also loaned to them, um, FMP7B. Um, mm -hmm. Also was, during filming, was still owned by Aston Martin. Okay. So they lent them their development prototype, um, chassis number DP2161, 
they spent £25,000 on fitting it out for filming with all the gadgets. Gee, hell. Um, yeah, I know. Big, big money. So they were loaned the car. Aston said, well, look, it's our development prototype. Um, we can't, at that time, they said we can't really sell it as a new car because it's a prototype. So here it is. Do what you need to use it for filming. So, yeah, they spent £25,000 on it. Um, John Steers, who was the head of special effects for the Bond team, um, masterminded the conversion. In fact, he was the one uh, who actually cut the hole in the roof for the ejector seat because <laughs> he wasn't going to let anybody else do that. Mm. And uh, yes, quite a moment, I'm sure. Um, I see how, yeah. Um, taking a taking an angle grind to your brand new Aston Martin. <laughs> But um, yeah, there it was. So twenty-five grand later, it was all fitted out with revolving number plates, extending overriders, machine guns behind the um, front indicators, uh, oil slick, and sort of like little little tire shredding nail things ejecting from the rear lights, the rear bulletproof screen, ejector seat, radio telephone, weapons tray under the driver's seat. Um, little radar jobby in the driver's mirror. I mean, a lot of that was never seen on screen. Yes, that's um, right. Yeah. And it was a real collaboration because everybody involved with the production had an idea. They all came up with, oh, wouldn't it be cool if it could do this? And wouldn't it be cool if it could do that? Mm-hmm. Um, the revolving number plates famously was um, Guy Hamilton, the director, came up with that because ah. um, he was fed up with getting parking tickets in London. And he thought, wouldn't it be great if <laughs> after I got the ticket, I could just push a button and change the plate? And away I go. Away I go. So that's where that idea came from. Um, oh, that's brilliant. But everybody contributed. And yeah, 25 grand later, they were ready to go. It did briefly go back to Aston Martin to be resprayed because the car was originally red, as we know. Um, yes. Dubonnet red. Still not the correct color, but yep. Horrible colour, but that was its original colour, but they didn't think that was very Bond. Um, Mm. Plus, it was grey in the book, and although Aston Martin didn't have a grey, they did have the silver birch, and that was the kind of closest match. So they went with silver. They retrimmed the interior, which was grey. We said it was cream last time we talked about this. It wasn't. It was grey. They had it retrimmed in black. Although, interestingly... The No Time to Die replicas do have a grey interior. Just a little. Are the continuation ones? Not the continuation car. Well, yes, the continuation cars do, but the No Time to Die replicas, I believe, did too. Okay. Um, They have a grey interior, uh, whereas in fact it was black. Okay. Um, But it was grey originally. So, kind of, yeah, it could go either way with that. But in Goldfinger, it was it was black. Um. So yes. So after all of that. Then uh, DP2161 was registered using the BMT216A license plate on the 1st of May, 1963. There you go. So that's, um, that's good. So that, that was its plate long before any bond. That was its plate. Um, yeah, yeah. Stepping back before the bond people got hold of it. Yes, that was its plate. BMT216A doesn't mean anything. That was just 
the plate that was issued to it when it was registered. Lovely. Um, it's a completely random number. It meant nothing. Um, although the chassis number did match it, DP216 stroke one, which was the DP standing for development prototype. Okay. Um, so whether they chose the 216 number, maybe, but I think the rest of it was just it's random, just it's random plate. Mm-hmm. Um, so registered on the 1st of May 1963, it was fitted with um, uh, Marshall fog lights under the front bumper, which were removed uh, by the Bond people. They didn't want the fog lights. They thought it was a bit fiddly. Um, and, of course, it also had the side-mounted indicators, which no other DB5 ever had. Um, and it's one of the key little details that um, set it out as the original uh, was the little orange indicators in the front wings. Right, that was it, yeah, we, because we yes. mentioned that last time. We mentioned we? that, and that is correct. Uh, no other DB5 ever had that. Um, and, um, yeah, there they there they were. They were on it originally. Um, why the prototype had that, I don't know. It just did. Um, the car also featured on uh, Aston Martin's 1964 sales brochure. Okay. Um, amazingly, um, it was the the cover car that year because it was their brand new model. And when the brochure went to print, um, it was the only one that existed. So, um, again, BMT 216A, if you can find an Aston Martin sales brochure from 1964, um, that car is, is on the cover. That's brilliant. Which is kind of cool. <laughs> yes, I didn't know that. That's something new I've, I've found, it out, found out. It was also... Um, tested by Autocar magazine um, and is included in their um, issue of the 13th of September 1963. Oh, lovely. Yes, you can find that. Yeah, (laughs) that's going to require a rummage. And if you find it, hang on. Hang on to that. Yes, absolutely. Again, BMT 216A is in there um, being given a review. So, okay. So, one, one thing that makes me think. Um, we're going for old old plates. BMT, so that would be MT. Is that that's a London plate? Uh, yes, I suppose it is. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. just just one of those. That, while you were reeling it off, I thought, oh, that, yeah, that kind of place is it. London, possibly, well, Middlesex plate, isn't well, it? Well, I suppose in 1963, there probably were only a few places that they would have had it registered. Yeah. Um and I guess London would make sense. Um mm. yeah, just one of those things I thought I happened to crop into my brain and thought, oh yeah, mm. that, that would be it. Yeah. The other thing it was used for, and again we touched on this um last time we talked about it, um, was the episode of the Saint. Um oh, we did, uh, the, didn't we? Yes. The noble sportsman. That was it, yes. Yeah. Um, which first aired on um, the 9th of January, 1964, and featured, again, that car in its original it red paint. Red, work. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right, although that episode of The Saint is actually black and white. But, um, <laughs> yes, the car was indeed red. Um, uh, so that aired on the 9th of January, 1964, and Goldfinger uh, premiered in London, Leicester Square, on the 17th of September, 1964. So it was all going on. Yeah, it was a busy vehicle. Mm. It was a very busy vehicle, but not as busy as it became. <laughs> um, 
So Sean Connery himself drove it to the world premiere in London and uh, famously uh, had a um, a woman jump through the passenger side window uh, into his lap um, whilst driving the car. Um, oh, that'll put you off your gear shift. That was a bit of a moment. Yes, you could mess up your linkage with that, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, your synchro mesh would be all over the place. Um, yeah, such was the reaction to, to Goldfinger. Um, it was incredible. In fact, I recall they actually pushed the glass in at the front of the cinema. There were so many people clamouring to get in. And the Aston was parked right out front with oh, everyone dear. around it. So it's amazing it survived that. Um, it just seems like a stampede. Good heavens. Yeah, absolutely. So it was used throughout the filming of Goldfinger in Switzerland. And uh, along with the sister car, FMP 7B. Uh, and as we mentioned last time, if you watch Goldfinger carefully, you can actually see them switching between the two cars. Yeah, you primarily can... because of the the side indicators, they're very prominent. Um, yes, so you can tell which is which. But at that time, FMP Seven B didn't have any gadgets on it. It was just a road car, whereas all the gadgets were on um, on uh, BMT Two One Six A. So um, that was the one with all the gear bits right. on it. Okay. Um, FMP was converted um, later on. Um, but during filming, uh, it didn't have any gadgets. And I think we told the story last time that it was actually damaged during filming. It was, um, yeah. yeah. There are some reasonably good photos from the film. Yeah, you can see, see it, can't you? Yeah. Yes, great scrape down the passenger side, yes. Yeah, even it, it comes into the, uh, the uh, Jason Barlow's book, he mentions it as well. Yes, it's quite famous now, isn't it? Mm. Someone took it off to buy lunch for the crew and came back and they'd, they'd hit it. Mm. Um, but that was not um, our hero car. That was not BMT. That's not the car we're talking about. That was the sister car. Um, but they had both of them out in Switzerland and they did all the filming with Goldfinger. Now, this was something I didn't know about that I've learned when doing this research. After filming, it went back to... Aston Martin. Um, Eon Productions did not hold on to it longer than they needed it for the actual shooting. So both cars went back to Aston Martin works. Okay. And BMT was at that time uh, stripped of all its gadgets and refitted with new gadgets because Aston Martin wanted to take it on a world tour. They wanted to try and cash in on the uh, whole Goldfinger thing. Okay. But they didn't think the gadgets that had been fitted to it for the filming were going to stand up to the pace of a world tour. So they redesigned it all, removed the filming gadgets, fitted their own gadgets, ready oh, for okay. it to go off Lightning. on its world tour. I didn't know that. No, that's a new so one. Okay. It was stripped of its original gadgets almost immediately. The stuff you see in the movie um, was literally only in it for a matter of weeks. <laughs> and it was removed. Apparently they gave all the stuff to the crew and people working at the factory and the bits were just blown to the four winds. So the chances of finding any of the original screen-used gadgets now... Slim to nil. Yeah, they're gone. They're right, gone. Yeah. 
So they refitted their own gadgets, which they felt were going to stand up to the pace a bit more of being used in the real world rather than just on screen. Um, they were fairly true to what you saw on screen. Um, they weren't as bad as some of the stuff that came later, but they were fairly cosmetically accurate. The switch gear in the center console was quite different. And some of the sort of mechanical workings of it were a bit different. The machine guns that come out from behind the front indicators were slightly different and various other bits and pieces, but cosmetically it looked more or less the same. Okay. Um, but that was a new one on me. I didn't no, I didn't that, know that. That's that, um, good investigations. I like that. Until I researched this. So, yeah, so then it went off on its world tour. Um, a chap called Mike Ashley, who was a European sales manager for Aston Martin Lagonda, was charged with uh, taking the car on its, uh, on its world tour. Um, yep. I always assumed that world tour was promotion work for Eon Productions for Goldfinger, but it wasn't. It was nothing to do with them. They'd That's... already gi- they'd already given the car back. It was yeah. Aston Martin that took it on its world tour. Okay, um, no, that I I was the same. I assumed it was Bond. I always did, but apparently not. And the idea was that they would follow the premieres of the movie around the world. Um, yeah, also sense. taking it to a number of shows and exhibitions along along the way. So Mike Ashley took it off. As I say, it followed the premieres of the movies. It appeared at the Paris Motor Show in October 1964. Mm-hmm. Um, it was back in London for the Lord Mayor's Show in November of 64. And then in December of that year, it went off to North America where it attended the uh, premiere of Goldfinger in New York. Right, okay. In fact, it actually, here's a nice little thing, uh, (laughs) it actually got a parking ticket outside the cinema uh, in New York on Christmas Eve, 1964. It was illegally parked and it got a ticket. And apparently Aston Martin still have the ticket with BMT 216A written on it. Did they pay it? I would imagine. Um, <laughs> or maybe not, because actually the car left America uh, within a matter of days after that, so maybe they didn't. No, they're fine. Just don't take it back. Just don't take it back. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, dear. So so it was in New York for uh, Christmas 64. Um, already um, you know, racking up some miles here. It then, uh, in January 1965, it returned to Europe and was at uh, Chateau Danier for in France for the filming of the pre-title sequence of Thunderball. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although none of its scenes actually made it into the final film. The Aston that's in, in Thunderball is FMP7B. They used both cars... <laughs> But the sequences involving BMT didn't make it into the final cut. Mm, so what's, what's in the movie is is the second car, is FMP. And the is pre-title... That, sorry, is that the sorry. same throughout the film as well? Yes. Uh, BMT doesn't appear on screen in Thunderball at all. Right, okay. Which I wasn't... I always assumed that it was. Well, um, you, you just, well you've got two. You'd have thought it would have shared roles for... Close up, it was sequences, and 
it visited there and it did do some work but none of it was none of it was used um mm. everything that's in the final cut is the is the other car and interestingly um if you look at the pre-title sequence of thunderball because fmb at that time didn't have any of the gadgets on it right um well i say that that's not quite true it did have it was hastily fitted with the rear bulletproof screen oh yeah because he uses it there and then because he uses it because the car won't start that's it. so he has to put the screen up to protect him and his lady friend um and then he fires the water cannons out the back that's right yeah which apparently were two fire hoses uh, strapped underneath the car um running from a nearby fire tender to um to simulate that which i always thought was kind of a bit weird because where's all the water if there's that much water in it it's never going to move (laughs) it would be so heavy Mm, yeah you don't want to worry about that no we don't want to worry about that um but if you look at that scene the car is filthy there's mud all over it and it's to disguise the fact that there was no ejector seat roof hatch Ah, right. I suppose that's they, why it was done. Oh, you, so they're saying, oh, it's grubby because he landed with his jetpack, conveniently yes. hiding the fact that there's no panel. Exactly that. That's right. right. Because the car at that that car at that time didn't have it. Oh. Um, why they then didn't use BMT if BMT was on the set, I don't know. Um, mm. But it was there apparently because it was back in France. Uh, to continue its world tour so from there it was driven through france germany and switzerland and its time in switzerland actor gert frober who played goldfinger uh, joined it and appeared at a number of shows and exhibitions with the car uh, again promoting goldfinger so it had been right across europe it then returned to the west coast of america Right. where it was displayed at Brownman's Chinese Theatre in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, it then went to San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Philadelphia, where the um, uh, city police department staged a little chase with it, and then finally landing in Miami. Okay. So it went right down the west coast of, of America, with loads of stops and things on the way. Also, during that trip, it was used in a number of commercials and advertising, promotional stuff, mainly advertising sort of Bond-related products. Oh, yeah, and, uh, you know that sort of thing. And Bob's clothes and you know all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was it was all a bit contrived, but then advertising is, isn't it? So, well, and especially then, I mean, you would have been even flogging cigarettes then, wouldn't you? The yeah, lots of, well, lots of that. It was also used to sell uh, Simonized car polish. <laughs> it was used in their advertising campaign that year. Brilliant. Um, so it was up to all sorts. This was a very hard-working car at this point. Now, here's one you're really going to like. It appeared at the 1965 Grand Prix at Laguna Seca. Okay. Where Jackie Stewart drove it as the pace car. Oh, dear. (laughs) How about that? That's a lovely little fact. Well done. Isn't it? Isn't it? I love that when I found that out. Um, But, yeah, it it was used as the BMT was used as the pace car in the the 1965 Grand Prix. Very good. Yes. 
I didn't know that with Jackie Stewart at the wee Jackie Stewart at the wheel. Did uh, I'm surprised you didn't request a tartan interior for it. Absolutely. Well, he wouldn't have been too happy because obviously it wasn't a Ford. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does have a point. Well, I, I think that came later, didn't it? I don't think he wasn't he wasn't quite so in Ford's pocket in that era. <laughs> I think that came later. Yes. Well, it was all right, but I'd have preferred an Escort. Um, but not like that. No, um, no, 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 you can't do that. No. <laughs> so, and that was the kind of, that was the... That was the end of its of its Goldfinger World Tour. Was uh, was at Laguna Seca. Um, that was the end of that. So in 1966, it went. It was returned back to Aston Martin, um, and was in uh, was briefly uh, in an exhibition there, um, where the Queen Prince Philip came and visited it. Um, and had a tour of the factory, and they were presented with uh, a miniature version of the DB5 for the then six-year-old Prince Andrew. Um, oh, and it, look, look, can of worms. Yes, I, we're into an area there, I grant you, uh, <laughs> and I, I feel that we should probably just um, uh, just move on there. Yeah, noted. Um, yep, there we go. Yeah, there we are. Um, so, and uh, yeah, it was then removed from the exhibition, put back in the workshop, and was once again stripped of all its gadgets. We touched on this yes. last time. Um, it was converted at the order of the managing director, was converted back into a standard road car. All the kit was removed, the roof hatch welded back in, uh, resprayed again, uh, interior retrimmed again, put back to as bog standard as they could, and was sold. Oh, um, so I said it first time around. I'm going to say it again. What a tit! Oh, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't having done this research. Mm. You can't say they didn't know what it was. I just you can't I, say they didn't understand by I this can't. point what it would could it could do for them. I mean, how desperate for money were they at this point? Well, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, Aston have always lurched from one financial calamity to another haven't they all the way back but you you can't claim by that point that you didn't know what it was going to do um it's goldfinger we we are two years on now from the release of goldfinger you know that is one of the biggest movies ever released it's done a world tour you know people will pay good money to come and see it why on earth would you destroy it that's I, not an intelligent move at all. And just chuck it? it away. I don't understand. It was even sold with the BMT license plate on it. Oh, that's lunacy. It, it just, mm. yeah, just strip it back, flog it as a used car, which is what they did. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my goodness me. Just, yeah, absolutely ridiculous. Pausing for a quick slurp because I've been doing a lot of talking. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do wet the whistle, won't you? Ooh. So. Here we are in late 1966. The car is up for sale mm-hmm. and it is purchased uh, by a man called Gavin Kazar, uh, okay. K-E-Y-Z-A-R, uh, at the time a 35-year-old company director from Chislehurst in Kent. Yeah, right. Um, oh, I told you I'd got all the details here. Um, and he uh, he bought it. And from what I can gather, it was his family car. And he he dailied it. Um, He just used it. 
He didn't use it with the BMT plate. He put a private plate on it. 6633PP um, was the plate that he put on it. Quite an unusual plate, actually. It's unusual. Um, but do you think, is there any record of him knowing what he'd bought? Yes, he absolutely did know what he'd bought. Um, and I'll come on to the proof of that in a second. I'm just going to shoot you a picture um, of the gentleman with the car that I have found, okay. uh, which obviously we will make available. Uh, yeah, yes, to, we will. Our, to our dear listener. There it is. Right. So there he there is, he is. Um, with his kids and wife in the car. And um, yeah, he just, uh, from what I can gather, he just used it. It was his daily car. Uh, it was his family car. He just used it. Why not? And there it was. Um, because he um, he was quoted uh, in a local newspaper um, at the time, uh, or in fact, a few years later, I'm sorry, um, quoted as saying that um, the car was a little too small for his two children, um, Nicolette, aged six, and Lucinda, aged three. Uh, but because it's the original Bond car, um, he can probably make some money with it. So he knew what it was. He knew it was the Goldfinger car. Right. And a year after purchasing it, um, he had um, an engineering firm in the south of England. And I'm sorry, I haven't been able to find the name of said company. He had them uh, study the movie um, and any information they could get and reinstall as many of the gadgets as they could so that he could start to try and capitalise on the car's history. But what they fitted to it was not at all faithful to what had been there originally. Um, dog's and breakfast. A lot, and a lot, it was a bit of a dog's breakfast, and a lot of it didn't work and had to be sort of fitted to it, like the rear bulletproof screen was permanently up the revolving number plates did work, but they were encased in these massive sort of perspex boxes so that they were sealed. The machine guns were permanently locked out of the front indicators. They wouldn't retract. It was a bit of a half-assed job, if I may be so bold. You may. Um, but to be fair, he probably didn't have the £25,000 budget that Eon Productions had. <laughs> No, no, he's, he's, I mean... <laughs> he's working on a budget. He wants to try and make some money out of this very famous car that he's managed to buy. But, yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a dog's breakfast. Um, right. So there it is. This is the third time it's been hacked about. <laughs> and the third what... set of gadgets that have been shoved into so, it. Have we got a date for when these gadgets went in? I think from what I've gathered, we're looking at 1967, 1968. Right, okay. Um, he owned the car for quite a while. I, I know when he sold it, we'll come on to that. But um, as I say, the, the gadgets, uh, the extending overriders had to be activated manually rather than the push of a button from inside the car. Machine guns were permanently locked out in the, you know, in the sort of attack position. Yeah. The and the the this is a small detail, but again, not faithful to the original. The indicators lenses flipped up rather than down, okay. So that was wrong. 
Um, the boot mounted bulletproof shield was permanently up. The tire shredders had to be sort of bolted on rather than slide out of the axles, um, things like that. So it was it was a bit limited and it really rendered it as a static show car. You know, none of that stuff would have been road legal. And because none of it operated, it was all sort of permanently fixed. It it really at that point was a was a show car and stopped it being used um day to day. So in 1969 he uh commented that it was uh, that he he because it was the original bond car and it had the gadgets back in it he could probably get a good price for it um but he did own it um for a little bit longer. Uh he eventually sold it in 1971. And it was bought by a Utah-based jeweler called, uh, I th- I'm quite sure the pronunciation of this, Richard Losey, L-O-S-E-E. Not quite sure how you pronounce that. But uh, he bought it and he had it shipped to the United States. So that's how it gets back to America. Right. Okay. Yeah, because we, we know why it ends up there and roughly what occurs don't we we do at the end of the story yes. but it was this this jeweler in utah who who shipped it back to the states mm. there isn't a lot of information about what happened to it during his ownership he actually owned it for 15 years he kept the gadgets on it as they were um the inaccurate gadgets yeah um he did take it to a lot of shows he rented it out to um tv productions and things uh most famously in 1981 he rented it to uh, the production of the cannonball run um in which it was driven by roger moore yep um and again you can see it on screen and you can identify it as bmt um because of the the indicators uh, on the wings in i believe in um that film um, it's wearing it's uh, still wearing its six six three three PP UK license plate. It's not clear if it was ever actually registered for road use in the United States. Uh, okay, I don't think it ever was. I don't oh, right. think it was ever made road legal. Well, because the gadgets would render it not road legal. Yeah, yes, this is true. Yeah, so I think it continued to wear the license plate. Um, now it's not clear. Also, at this point where the bmt plate is it was sold to mr kazar with the bmt plate on it he didn't drive it with that plate on it so presumably he put it on retention not sure about that but again we'll pick that up a little bit a little bit later in our story very good oh yes so fast forward to 1986 right okay yep Mr. Losey, however you pronounce that, had decided it was time to sell. And the car appears at uh, Sotheby's in New York mm-hmm. uh, on the 27th of June, 1986. It was lot number 465 and was uh, auctioned with a number of Goldfinger uh, items, including Goldfinger's uh, Rolls-Royce, the 1937 um, Phantom Three Rolls-Royce. So there are a number of items at that auction. And 
there were two people bidding for what was there, and it got quite heated. The other, uh, there were yeah, two two people interested. One was um, a man called Stephen A. Greenberg, a New York nightclub owner, and the other bidder was a Mr. Anthony V. Pugliese the third. He was a uh, a very charismatic, uh, flamboyant individual, um, a Florida real estate developer and collector of pop culture. Um, he had all kinds of weird and wonderful things. He owned um, Odd Jobs razor brimmed hat. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, okay. From Goldfinger. He also owned the gun that was used to assassinate Lee Harvey Oswald. See how. Um, yeah, a weird and wonderful collection of of stuff. So, Mr. Puglesi and Mr. Greenberg are both bidding like crazy for the DB5. The bids are going up $10,000 at a time. They're both really going for it. But when the bidding reaches $250,000, the hammer goes down and it goes to Mr. Puglesi. Right, okay. The Rolls-Royce went to Mr. Greenberg. So they both okay. walked away with a screen-used car. But okay. Mr. P- Mr. Puglesi gets, uh, gets our car. Right. Um, now, $250,000 doesn't sound like a lot even for 1986 for what it was but it wasn't really the most famous car in the world anymore it had been a bit forgotten plus at the time bond was in a a very much an era of of transition um roger moore had had finished with the series with a view to a kill in 1986 it looked like pierce brosnan was going to be the next bond Um, yes in fact, I think he had actually been signed to be the next Bond at that point. So, you know, kind of the older Bonds weren't really being looked at, and it, it wasn't really the most famous car in the world at that point. Um, uh, that's fair to say. It was a bit rough. It had been a bit forgotten. Um, it had got these weird gadgets on it that weren't really very true to the original. But... Nevertheless, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and it went to it went to Mister Puglesi. Now, he didn't actually he wasn't present at the auction here. I believe he was bidding over the phone, and it was a man called Robert Luongo, who was his brother-in-law, who actually collected the keys from the previous owner, um, and was present at the auction. In fact, I have another. Uh, photograph just to slide across to you. Wonderful. And I believe our man is on the left in that photograph. That is right, it okay. at the auction. You can see in that photograph the the, the weird gadgets, the atrocious gadgets. Yes, that's right. Particularly that that front number plate housing. Um, yeah, that, that's bad. And like you that say, is really bad. Yeah. yeah, but you can still you can still make out a side repeater there. It is the car. It is still our car, yeah. So we're we're uh, we're still tracking it to this point. So Mr. Luongo um, collected it. Now he was employed by a number of Mr. Puglesi's businesses for doing all sorts of bits and pieces, and he was basically charged with looking after the car. He was going to be in charge of of managing it, and he did for the next decade. 
He was in charge of taking it to shows, negotiating with museums, exhibitions, really promoting it and using it, you know, taking it around the States um, and really kind of developing its its reputation, if you like. Yep. Um, and that's that's exactly what he did. Um, and there was clearly a desire there to try and increase the car's value, I think, was what they were what they were aiming to do. Now, here's an interesting little little thing that gets you thinking. A year into uh, Mr. Piclesi's ownership of the car, he had it uh, appraised by a number of different insurance companies. And the highest valuation, they were all kind of ballpark, but the highest valuation um, by an insurance company called Grundy Worldwide, just to get all the details in, <laughs> um, they valued it at 4.2 million dollars right now that's that's a big number that's a big number and bear in mind only a year earlier he bought it for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. now that's a huge hike in value in 12 months just a tad yep so that immediately starts you thinking what's going on here um now since that in more recent years jim grundy who is the owner of grundy worldwide insurance has expressed some regret over giving that valuation and he has gone on record as saying that probably wasn't very realistic the car probably couldn't have been sold for that number at that time um uh, yeah. it probably wasn't realistic nevertheless they did insure the car a year into ownership for $4.2 million. Okay. Now, you can debate that back and forth. It was the screen-used Goldfinger car. It has an enormous amount of history. But nevertheless, that's a hell of a hike in value in 12 yeah, that's, months. That's optimistic at best, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Anyway, Mr. Luongo continues to promote the car and manage the car but at some point there's some sort of falling out between him and mr puglesi i did uncover all sorts of things about this which we won't drag into here but there was some sort of falling out between them right mr luongo was no longer on puglesi's payroll okay but he continued to go about with the car he continued to negotiate with museums he continued to show the car and manage it, even though he was no longer being paid to do so. Okay. That's also, I think, a key, a key element that we we may come back to. Um, okay. right. Nobody who was exhibiting the car or agreeing to have the car in their display or doing some promotional work with the car had any idea who Mr. Puglesi was. They always dealt with Mr. Luongo. He was the man, you know, as far as yeah, they were yeah. concerned, it was, you know, his car to, to walk around. So mm -hmm. a bit of a strange situation developing, developing there. Yeah. So this brings us up to 1997. Uh, this is a pivotal year. <laughs> this is a pivotal year for this, for this car. Going to have another quick swig. If mm, yeah. Better add calm yourself. Mm. Settle the nerves for a minute. Mm. We're getting into the nub of the crux here. 
um, as they say. <laughs> so, between the hours of 4pm on Wednesday the 18th of June and 7am on Thursday the 19th of June 1997, the car is stored at uh, Boca Raton Airport in Florida. That's right. In a locked hangar. This particular airport was not the most secure location, shall we say. <laughs> and the car is stolen, which we covered the last time we yep. we spoke. Yeah, that was it. The car, car goes missing from the hangar in which it is stored between those hours uh, in June of 97. Um, Did, am I right in saying that there was even um, evidence to suggest that uh, they hadn't even got into the car, they'd just dragged it? Yeah. The, what ex- The method of removal is debated. Um, I've got quite a bit of detail about this, but yes, there is evidence. It was in the police report and it was in the newspaper at the time that there were tire tracks across the hangar floor, suggesting the car had been dragged out with its rear tires, obviously locked locked yeah. uh, because the car was locked. The windows were up. The handbrake was on. So to get it out, uh, without damaging it unduly, Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you'd have had to wrap a chain around the front bumper or axle or whatever and drag it out. Yeah. Um, and yes, uh, it was widely reported, and it is in the police report uh, that there were tire tracks leading out of the out of the hangar. Okay. Now, as I said, it wasn't the most secure location. The perimeter there was a, a seven foot chain link perimeter fence, which was not alarmed. Um, there was one overnight security guard for the whole airport, a man called Dave Gradowski, if we want those details. We do. Um, yes. Um, there were more than 60 privately rented hangars in this particular corner of the airport grounds. The one containing the DB5 was the only one touched that night. Very uh, it's nicked to order then. It was building number four. Hangar 6. Brilliant. Just to be clear. Um, the building itself was alarmed, but they managed to get around that by just snipping a few wires. Mm-hmm. Um, they cut and removed the rubber mounting around the hangar doors, which meant they could just be slid out of the way. The padlock was cut, and that got them in. It, it, it wouldn't have taken long. And with that lax of security, nobody really would have been. There's no cameras. There's, I mean, it was 1997, but even so, there was no cameras. There was no patrolling security. Right. There was no really any secured fence. I mean, you could soon cut through or even climb over a six-foot chain-link fence. Yeah, um, it's not too bad, is it? No. So reports of how it was removed, as I, as I said vary the car was locked with the handbrake on but there is evidence that it was dragged out um presumably by some sort of vehicle press reports did cover that at the time um now some say it was 
loaded onto a transport plane. Uh-huh. Some say it was loaded onto a truck and driven out. The truth is there isn't enough evidence either way. Although um, there were reports of a large cargo plane landing at the airport that night. Right. But it was a small airport with no control tower, no real records being kept. Planes could even remotely operate the landing lights on their approach. So it would have been possible to land and take off again without anybody really being any the wiser. Yeah. So it is possible that a plane uh, was was flown in. Mr. Puglesi was quoted at the time in the South Florida Sentinel as saying that he believed the car had been flown out of the country. Why he right. believed that or not, who knows? But it was investigated by the insurance company. In fact, Jim Grundy himself took charge of the investigation, and he believed that the car had been flown out. In fact, he made reference specifically to a Hercules C-130. By specific? Very specific. Um, obviously, it would have had to have been a plane big enough to take the DB-5, but the DB-5 is not a massive car. Um, it is quite heavy, and of course, with all its gadgets, even heavier. But even so, I wouldn't have thought it would be too much bother to get it onto a onto a cargo plane. I mean, with the handbrake on and the rear wheels locked, it would have been a little bit much more of a challenge. A bit of a pain in the ass, really. But, you know, if you wanted, you could always lift it and put it on skates. I mean, you know, car um, transport companies do that when they're transporting cars that, you know, have locked brakes and things like that. So that, mm. that wouldn't have been... That wouldn't have been out of the realms of possibility. No, not at all. Um, get it up on skates, you'd soon whiz it across a, a runway. So, you know, it's it's plausible, but there was so little security at the airport and so, well, non-existent record-keeping. To the theory of it being driven out on a truck, the main gate was controlled by a key card but there were no records kept as to who had these key cards. And apparently you could just buy them from the airport. Anybody could roll up, pay the fee and buy a key card. (laughs) And there were no records kept of who the cards were sold to. There were no cameras at the main gate. So even if you didn't have a card, you could probably just rock up, push the buzzer, the overnight guard could answer and you say, Oh yeah, I'm, um, I own the you know the Piper Alpha and Hangar Twelve. Yep. Just here to do a bit of maintenance for the evening. He's not going to. He's going to let you in. He's That's not going to argue. And there you are. You're in. So there may not have even been any scaling of the fences. There may not have needed to be. It, yeah. it was. This was not a secure location. <laughs> no, not at all. And although the hangar itself was locked and the car was locked, there wasn't a lot standing in the way of anybody taking it. No, it certainly doesn't sound like it. No, it was the only hangar touched. There were other hangars in previous weeks where people reported it looked like somebody had tried to have a, you know, tried to get in, but none of them ever were breached. There were other expensive and exotic cars being stored in other 
hangars in that area. Right. But on that night, the hangar containing the DB5 was the only one touched. Yeah, that's very much on purpose, isn't it? Make of that what you will, really. I think Mm -hmm. Um, there really was um, very little very little security the airport manager at the time a man called nelson rhodes confirmed to the police that there was no control tower there were no records kept really of who was using uh, the airport and he confirmed um, that planes could come and go at will and could even remotely operate the landing lights so yeah it's not out of the realms of possibility that a, a plane could have been used there were no visual checks on exit or entry of any vehicles, and there was no system of recording even when the cards were used to open and close the gates. So, oh, dear. Um, It's the perfect place to nick it, really, isn't it? The other interesting thing that used to go on there, apparently, um, and I, I, a lot of this information, actually, I will credit, comes from another podcast um, on the subject, um, which is very interesting. And they go into a, a lot of this stuff in a lot more detail. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were, and I'll, all of this information I will write up into an article to put online, and I will put references as to where I've got a lot of this information. But um, there were a lot of um, what they call hangar parties being held where... People would open the doors to their hangar and they'd have all their exotic cars there and they'd have all their mates over. And, you know, it's not clear if the DB5 was ever involved in any of that, but it could have been. Can of worms. Can of worms. Absolutely. And again, no security, no records kept as to who was attending these parties or who was even holding them. Um, It was a bit of a free for all by the sound of it at this particular. Also, interestingly, um, Boca Raton um, is in what they call uncontrolled airspace. In other words, yeah, can't do anything. Yeah. You can, yeah, crack on. Yeah. <laughs> it's all yours. Oh, um, so now, of course, once it got in the press that the car had been stolen, um, and once the police and insurance companies were investigating, there were sightings everywhere. People were seeing DB5s all over the shop, um, mm. as you would expect. And, you know, the police were trying to follow it up. But in the end, you know, not every silver two-door sports car was the one they were looking for. And a lot of the people calling in the reports didn't even really know what the car looked like. They said, oh, yeah, I saw yeah, a silver sports car on the freeway today. Well... <laughs> It doesn't mean it's the one we're looking for, does it? Really not Um, very helpful, that. Really not very helpful. Although, you know, a very distinctive car, if you don't know what you're looking for, any silver two-door sports car, you know, could fit the bill, couldn't it? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not like it's a really unusual (laughs) colour. So not a lot to go on there. And, yeah, the police really didn't ever come up with with anything so much so that um a few months later the insurance company and this is something we didn't know before the insurance company paid um mr puglesi 4.2 million dollars bloody hell they settled 
in full. Now, there was some debate over whether that valuation was valid uh, and realistic, but at the end of the day, they agreed that they had made that valuation, they'd signed off on it, and his policy was valid. Yep. The car had been stolen, the police had no leads, no way of recovering it. The chances are it was gone for good, so they paid him. Well, okay. Now, that sparked off years of lawsuits and feuds between Mr. Puglesi and Mr. Luongo, who claimed that it was down to him that the car was worth anything like that kind of figure because he'd spent 10 years promoting it and working it and taking it around and developing its reputation. He even claimed that at one point uh, Puglesi had said to him, oh, if you can, you know, if you can get, you know, sensible money for this car, I'll give you 10%. Now, there was nothing in writing. There was never any contract between them. Even his employment with him was pretty casual. But he sued him. Uh, Luongo sued Puglesi for his 10% of the insurance payout saying that it was down to him that the car was worth that much in the first place. You're, you're just getting messy. And he won the case. <laughs> so he got his 420 grand. He got more than that because the judge in, in Florida, it seems even if they're, or at least at the time, I don't know if it's still the case, but in Florida uh, states, even if there's no written contract in place, if you have provided a service, even if it's for free, that provides some value to the recipient, you are entitled to remuneration equal to that value. Oh, and no, the, no judge de- the judge decided that was the case. So he awarded him his 420000 plus an additional 600000 for his part in the increase of the car's value. Oh, cool million. A cool million. Oh, yeah. <laughs> having said he did spend 10 years working with this thing yeah yeah yeah. so you know fair dues perhaps sadly mr luongo um passed away shortly after receiving that payment not in mysterious circumstances oh, just yeah. before you go there so it didn't oh. do him any good um oh, poor sod but yeah that's a bit sad but um Here's where the story takes another lurch in another direction. The 12th of July, 1997. So about a month after the theft, the disappearance, as we'll Mm -hmm. call it. uh, An anonymous voicemail was (laughs) left with the Boca Raton police. Uh, Mr. Luongo was still alive at this point. Um, The message claimed that the car hadn't been stolen, but that it had been moved by the owner, Mr. Puglesi, to a warehouse in Newark, in New Jersey, where he owned a number of commercial properties relating to his other unrelated business activities, and that the whole thing was insurance fraud. Now, this came just as Mr. Luongo was heating up his case, and he had threatened Mr. Puglesi that he would go to the police and claim that it was insurance fraud. It could be that this anonymous call, which was from a, a woman, 
but it could be that it was part of his case to try and undermine the situation or cause trouble. They really weren't best buds at this point. Uh, Luongo and Pugliese's sister had divorced messily and it had all got a bit bit out of hand. A full investigation following this voicemail was carried out by the Boca Raton police. They did go and interview Pugliese. He did have his lawyer present at the interview. Um, he was found to be having some financial difficulties with some of his businesses. Mm -hmm. um, some of his properties had been foreclosed on. He did confirm, he volunteered to the police, that he did indeed own warehouse buildings in Newark, in New Jersey. Yep. He even told them the address and exactly which units he owned. Mm -hmm. However, there is no evidence that the Boca Raton, Raton police ever followed that up. Um, there is no record that they ever visited these warehouses uh, or investigated that any further. Uh, they basically closed the case. Interesting. And they were done. Uh, mm. uh, they uh, certainly no law enforcement have ever looked into the case uh, since. Um, they gave up on it pretty quickly. It's been suggested that maybe they figured, well, yeah, it's all a bit dodgy, but it's just it's just very wealthy men playing with toys. It's true. It's not. It's we've not got death, is it? We've got gangsters shooting people on the streets here. We've got gun runners, drug pushers. We really can't be bothered with this. Yeah. No. This. Yeah. You can. You can you deal some very silly rich man's toy. We really don't care. <laughs> so it was dropped and it was never investigated whether this anonymous call had something who knows Pugliese who's still alive today he's in his late 70s now he's had continued to have a sort of fairly colourful life he has actually uh, served time in prison for defrauding a business associate oh dear um, we'll park that there and yeah it's it's gone and it has never been recovered um there the case kind of goes cold until fairly recently there is i don't want to call him a bounty hunter but there is a guy who runs a business called art recovery international who specializes in finding rare and exotic items which have gone astray I've um, I've I've seen his uh, well. It's almost kind of a wanted poster, isn't it? It is Christopher Marinello. The chap's called. Yeah. Um, he's currently offering a hundred thousand dollar reward for any information that leads to the recovery of the Goldfinger DB five. I don't. He's been on the case for quite a while. He was hired by the insurance company, who would like their car back because it does belong to the insurance company now, and uh, he. He, as we mentioned last time, he's not saying too much, but he has been given a tip that the car is somewhere in the Middle East, possibly Dubai, in a very large, very secure private collection. Okay. It's not a look. He has said it's not a location he can get to. You know, he's not just walking in there and saying, I don't think that belongs to you. You know, it's not that sort of thing. Yep. Um, 
He specialises in cases like this where wealthy and powerful people are in possession of things that they clearly shouldn't be. He will talk to them, find out what they would like to do, and oftentimes can arrange an anonymous, amicable resolution to the situation. Okay. Um, in whatever way the rightful owner would like, whether that's the return of the, of the item or a financial compensation or whatever that may be. Um, well, it's going to be the item in this case, isn't it? I would have thought so. <laughs> I would have thought so. Um, he said those negotiations can go one of two ways. Sometimes the individuals, oftentimes the individuals will cooperate. Um, if they don't, sometimes he has to expose them. Um, sometimes he has to go public um, yep. and involve the police. He tries not to. Um, but sometimes if someone's not playing ball, you know, he may have to. And his his advice in these situations is come to me before I come to you. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> and we might be able to sort this out. Mm. Somebody out there knows they've got this car. You're assuming it them. exists, assuming yep. it hasn't been destroyed, assuming it wasn't stolen by mistake, and whoever received it said, "Oh bloody hell! We're never going. This is poison. We're never going to be able to do anything with this. This is so top. Just wreck it, destroy it, drop it in the sea. We can't be anywhere near this, you idiots! What have you stolen this for? Because <laughs> what's the, what value does it have if you can't show it? That that's the thing, like you say, it's a show car. It could I mean, be a mistake, or it, it the only it could have been a mistake that couldn't option. be corrected. Yes." Yeah. The only other option is rich person stolen to order. Yeah. Big uh, Bond fan, fancied the original car, got wind of where it was, sent in a team to collect it. Yeah, and there are high-ticket items all over the world that things like that have happened where you go, oh, you could never sell that. And you go, well, no, you're not thinking right. They don't yeah. want to sell it. They want it. There's collectors and there's collectors, isn't there? Yeah. Um, you and I would want you know if we could buy something like that we'd want to show it we'd yeah. want to use it we'd want people to enjoy it we'd want to share it with the world but as you say not everybody thinks like that no. there's collect there's collectors and then there's collectors yeah. um he christopher marinello believes the car does still exist he believes it's intact and he believes it's in a, a wealthy person's private collection he still thinks one day he might be able to one day soon he might be able to bring it back yeah. to the light well, of day that's it um, it's reared its head recently as we touched on yeah this episode and you think well, that's right it, it it you wouldn't start talking about it if there wasn't even a hint of it happening he's he won't give details quite obviously quite understandably yeah. but he he's recently been given a tip because as you know he said sooner or later somebody in your inner circle is going to say something to somebody of course um, that's a hell of a secret to keep i mean they've done well to keep it this long but yeah. he he's got this this hot lead that he's following and 
yeah, he he wants he wants the car back. It's it's only in this day and age. It's only a matter of time before there's a a sneaky little photo on a smartphone. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? That's the thing. We all carry high definition cameras in our pockets now. Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't take long. It really um, wouldn't. So yeah, let's hope. Um, let's hope it does still exist. Let's hope it's intact. Um, and let's hope it can come back because yeah. it's it's a wonderful thing. It's an important thing. It's been estimated that its current value on the open market would be somewhere around the $15 million mark. I'm personally, I'm surprised it's not more than that. Um, Estimates are always really low. Yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. You, you remember, because you, you were in the room at the same time, do you remember the, the Pink Floyd, uh, David Gilmore guitar auction? Mm. I do. I remember you were watching it on the day it was happening. Yeah. I was so excited. And the you est- were. The estimates were so low. Like, for instance, the, the yeah. biggest high-ticket item, the estimate was, uh, I don't know, something like, it was a quarter of a million, something like that, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it, it sold for 3.9 million. Yeah. If, so if, if the gold gets out, would be five. If that went to auction, I'd, sky's the limit, I think. Yeah. You, because you are... like the auction in New York in 1986, I think it would just... It would just snowball, wouldn't it? It would get out of hand. Yeah, um, you, I'd see that topping those silly numbers that the two hundred and fifty GTO makes. Could be, couldn't it? I'd, I'd really see it hitting those daft numbers. Because this is the one. You bet. I mean, FMP. I think did that. That sold in twenty ten for about three point two million. Yeah, that's the, the sister car, mm. um, and that. But that it's yes, that was screen used in Goldfinger and Thunderball, but it's not it's not the one. It's not the one, is it? It doesn't have the provenance. It's not the one that went on tour. It's not the one that Jackie Stewart took round Laguna Seca. It's not the one that Sean Connery drove down um to the premiere and had the girl leap through the window. It's yeah. It's it's the one. Even though the gadgets on it are poo. Um <laughs> Well, that might, you know, that might have to be sorted. When um, we last saw it, they were poo. Oh, this is true. That may have been corrected. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Mm. That's true. Um, that, very exciting, the fact that it's, it, this story hasn't died of death. No, not at all. Not um, at all. This is um, after those announcements that we touched on in, a, in our previous episode. This, this hasn't gone away. No, it hasn't gone away. We should probably just briefly, since we've mentioned them, touch on, and I won't go into anything like the same kind of detail, um, touch on the uh, the second car, mm-hmm. um, FMP7B, uh, again owned by Aston Martin during the filming of Goldfinger and Thunderball. It too was returned to Aston Martin after its promotional work in 1968, and stripped of all its gadgets. So they did it again. Oh, just confiscate it, really, wouldn't it? Just take it away. You yeah. can't have this anymore. Yes. So that was stripped, turned back into a standard car. It was then sold for $12,000. Um, 
and it was in quite a rough state by this point but aston martin tidied it up a bit its chassis number was db5 uh, 1486r it was displayed uh, at a few shows uh, around america until apparently it was damaged quite badly at a show in memphis tennessee and it was then withdrawn from uh, public uh, view the owner was very very cross and it was uh, then uh, in 1977 uh, as part of the furore around the release of the spy who loved me it uh, appeared at the new york auto show um, but it was in a bit of a bad way uh, and aston martin offered to uh, refurbish the car and reinstall the original gadgets as in goldfinger spec as in goldfinger spec so yeah. all the gubbins was put back in to this mm -hmm. one so both the screen used cars they've been naffed around yeah, with I mean, so much yeah. <laughs> yes cut about repaired cut about again bashed <laughs> just awful awful treatment of these screen icons but i mean the same thing was true with the back to the future delorean wasn't it i mean it's just awful really really unloved cars yeah so it was then after it appeared at the new york auto show it then went back to the um it was actually jerry lee who owned it at this point they went back to his private collection um and then eventually he decided to sell it and that's when it it came up for for auction um in in 2010 mm -hmm. um and was purchased by a car collector in ohio um he still owns the car today and displays it at various shows and uh, exhibitions so yeah that's it's less less high profile life but it's it's nice that it's in a, it's in decent hands now it's in decent hands it's been professionally refurbished by Aston Martin themselves and had faithful, uh, accurate gadgets put back in it by Aston Martin themselves, although they stripped them out in the first place. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there yeah. it is. There were, as we've mentioned before, two further cars fitted the with gadgets, cars, but the, the promo cars that were never screen used. The first of those was chassis number DB52017R. Uh, now, this is a key detail, and the reason I wanted to mention these little bits of history. This car was reissued the UK license plate BMT216A. So the so, two, so chassis number you're saying 2017? 2017R. Yeah, the first of the two promo cars that legally wore the plate BMT 216A. That, that's the one that we've mentioned before though, as well that is in the Netherlands in the Laumann Museum. Yes, that, exactly that. Yes, that's, it is. Yeah. It was uh, one of two cars commissioned by Eon Productions. They paid $62,000 each. Bearing in mind... At that time, you could buy a brand new DB5 for eleven thousand two hundred and fifty. So, didn't have an ejector seat though, did it? No, didn't. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so those two cars, unlike the screen-used cars, Eon Productions did actually own. They were 
uh, or the this particular card two o one seven R and its twin two zero zero eight R were sold to uh, Lord Bamford in nineteen sixty nine. He purchased both cars for three thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars. Seems a bit cheap, if you ask me. Yes. Um, and uh, one of the cars was then sold. Uh, well, I say sold. It was swapped with a friend of his. He swapped, uh, I believe, the second of the two DB5s for a uh, Ferrari 250 GTO. Good swap. And Bamford still has the Ferrari and the first Aston Martin uh, to this day. Okay, yeah, he's, he's winning at that point. Yeah, he's got that, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, one thing about those chassis numbers, um, yes. the R at the end, does that signify which side the steering wheel's on? Uh, I don't know, but I would imagine so, that both cars were right-hand drive. Yep. So probably, yeah. Yep, that would make sense. Um, I say that because... Am I right in thinking that the... The Aston in Casino Royale was left-hand drive. Yes, it was. That's right. Which makes sense. I I don't know why I've got this in my head, but the number for that was one three nine nine L, and that was, I believe, that was interesting. That was loaned to them, I think. Yes, it was. That wasn't a fake. That was a genuine DB five. Yes, that was, that, they didn't have it. That that was someone. That was someone's private car. They bought. Yes, it was left hand drive, and it had. It didn't have UK plates on it, did it? It had. No, no um, it had the uh, Bahamas plates. It was Bahamas plates, the, yes. the blue and yellow. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Nice, nice details. I didn't have the chassis number of that car, but as I said, this was not meant to be a history of every DB5 that's ever been used yeah. in a Bond film. Um, but I thought it was worth just touching on these original um, ones. So the second of the promo cars um, was only owned by the guy that swapped it for the Ferrari uh, for four months. He then advertised it in the Times uh, for sale, and a chap called Frank Baker of Vancouver bought it for $21,600. Bargain, really. The car was delivered to uh, Montreal and then driven right across Canada to Vancouver on a a two-week road trip, which is pretty cool. The car then spent the next 13 years outside this chap's uh, restaurant in West Vancouver. But then he fell on uh, hard times in the 1980s and sold the car on for $7,000. The car then went under underwent a complete uh, bare metal restoration, and it was sold again for uh, and sold for $80,000. Uh, the new owner was a racing driver called Bob... Uh, bon, Bondurant, I don't know if you know him, I don't uh, The dome doesn't ring a bell, no. No, I wondered if you would. But he then sold it on again, and then it was sold again to a chap who um, overpaid for it and believed it was the one, but later found out that uh, it wasn't the one driven by Sean Connery and Goldfinger. Um, so he flogged it on again, and it ended up on the forecourt of a Jaguar dealership in New Jersey. Wow. Um, in 1989, that particular dealership went bust and the car disappeared. 
only to ah interesting only to resurface at the Laumann collection in the National Automobile Museum in Holland. Well, so as per your um as per your your information. Um and the car remains there to this day. It does. Um, and I I feel the need we you and I should really go and tick that one off. Yeah, I think we need to, don't we? Yeah. yeah that I one's really not very far away. No, in the grand and scheme either. of things, it's not. No. no. And now um, that the world is opening up a bit again. Yeah, um, it seems like a fair little road trip. I think it? I think we need to make that um uh, make that happen next year. Um I think uh, yeah, I think I think we should because that's that's so lovely because we could we could do that so easily if you go we could get the ferry from Harwich to Hook of Holland and it's what is it an hour drive the other side if that yeah something like that yeah it's not long yeah yeah, yeah. um but yeah the, we sh- we really should shouldn't we yeah I think we should we should make that happen um, we should make that happen before we wrap things up mm. um I know we've basically been dealing with the Goldfinger car but we're, I know we've touched on the other cars. There's the one DB5 that's cropped up in several films now in later years uh, with the chassis number 1484R, mm. uh, which I do believe is an Eon car, uh, one that they bought. They do own at least one. Yeah, yeah. That, I yeah. believe that's their one. And that one is the one in Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies, Skyfall and Spectre. Is it the same one? Yeah. Right. Is that the one wearing the plate BMT two one four A? Yes. Certainly the ones, obviously the 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 Brosnan ones. I think it got yes replated it, for it Mr. Gray. Presumably, Eon owned that plate, but they don't own BMT two one six A. I know it appears on a lot of the cars. But obviously they're fake. They're not used that's, on the road. That's um, it. Yeah, the, your your research certainly suggests they don't have it. Yeah, they can no. screen, but it would suggest it was legally it was assigned to the first of the two promo cars. Mm. Um, certainly, the chap who bought the original car didn't use that plate on it. Um, no, so that suggests it was fair game. Yeah, I think the plate was separated from the car at some point. Yeah, some some astute person snapped that up. Yes, I think maybe so. I don't, time, I don't maybe, think Eon own it. Uh, maybe at the time they they did snap it up when it became available, um, but have since lost it. Cause yes, that's entirely that well. Changed both, hands so much. Both those promo cars have changed hands, yes, so yeah. many times. I mean, there's... I skipped over some of it. There's there's more of changing of hands of both cars. Um, the, yeah. In fact, one of them has since been sold again for about $2.6 million, which seems to be a bit pricey for a car that actually wasn't used on screen. Um, That's great. Yeah. It sounds like people are mistaking them for the screen used cars. Uh, yeah. And they're not. Um, but although the gadgets on them are a lot more faithful to the original than ironically, is on the original. <laughs> it's a difficult one, isn't it? Go, well, yeah. all right, yeah, I'm going to pay extra because this is actually, I can pretend to be Bond more in this. Yes, especially if one of them does actually legally have the 216 plate on it. Yeah, if that um, promo car that we've been talking about has that plate on it, my goodness me. Like, yeah, legally. If you, if you could roll that out of the museum and onto the road and drive it with that plate on it. 
Oh, that'd be a that'd be a moment, wouldn't it? Oh, that'd be a moment, that, wouldn't it? But ironically, the least cared for and probably now the least accurate of all of them is the original. It's the one. Yeah, it's the one. Mm. Yes. Oh dear. But I hope that's been of interest to uh, our listener and to yourself. Um, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that. You you did exceptionally well there. I have put hours into that. Yeah, I will. I will chuck it all together and write it into a nice article because it would be a shame to to waste it. Um, yeah, yeah, don't do that. I mean, you've scribbled it down anyway, so let's let's get it. Oh, I've got it all down. down. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And I've got you know photographs to go with it, like the two I've, I've already shown yeah. to you. Well, that, um, that's good because we we got a bit of time between now and editing and putting it on the website. So hmm. yeah, we'll sort that out. I'll give but, you a bit of time um, to type that up, but that's bloody marvelous. Well done, mate. Well, thank you. I, I enjoyed doing that. I like research, and that, yeah. that's a fascinating topic, finding out all the twists and turns of what happened to that car. And let's hope, fingers crossed, that it will resurface one day. It, it deserves to. It, it deserves its place in history. It's certainly pointing that way at the moment, isn't it? It shouldn't spend its time tucked away. People should be able to see that and enjoy it and learn the story. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be hidden away in some private collection. That's that's not right. No, no, that's no. You're you're quite right. That can, uh, yeah, no. It it needs to be needs to be in our face. I think so. But yes, yeah. I hope everybody's enjoyed that. Um, yeah, I, I well, I certainly have. So there's going to be some others, other weirdos cool. out there that's going to enjoy that. So it's oh, I hope so. I hope so. People that are as pervy as us for this sort of detail. <laughs> Oh yeah, but you kind of love a pervy detail. We're we're well away with that. Oh, we are. We oh. are. There is another eight-part, believe it or not, podcast on this subject, um, not done by us, called "Great James Bond Car Robbery," uh, put out by Spyscape. Um, some of my research comes from that. So, if anybody wants to go and check that out, and also the excellent book by Dave Worrell, the most famous car in the world. That's definitely worth a read if you are interested in this subject. It's a good one. Yeah, we'll 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 pop some links up with, mm. for, for both of those because there are loads of other sources on the internet that I've used for this, but yeah, good good podcast and and the book. Well, I mean, by the time we release this, that'll be an ideal Christmas present. Oh, very good. Yes, yes, very good. Yes, if Mr. Worrell wishes to say nice things about us online, that would be lovely. I actually <laughs> bought my copy directly from him at a show, which is quite ah, cool. That's, that's even better. <laughs> and my 118th scale auto art model of the Goldfinger DB5, I bought from him at the same time. Oh, dirty. <laughs> I should have got him to sign it. I didn't. What an idiot. <laughs> we can we can bring out that label again, can't we? Tit. Oh, yeah. There you <laughs> we go. can. Yeah, missed Silly. opportunities uh, of our youth. Yes. Silly boy. Yeah. Silly boy. No, yes. Good. There we go. Well, lead us out, sir. Yeah, well, that's that's been absolutely brilliant, mate. You've your research has uh, done you proud there. So yeah, I'm I hope everyone else enjoys that. And uh, we'll we'll pop up various photos and links on Twitter and Instagram and if you if you want to give us a shout email stuffandwaffle at gmail.com 
Mm, please do. We're happy to talk about DB5s all day. Yeah, all definitely. But yes, (laughs) thank you very much for listening.